you might have a vision that doesn't match the reality of the people that are required to pull it off. Buying and selling businesses just got a lot easier. Welcome to the Web Equity Show, where thousands of successful entrepreneurs go to learn about buying, growing, and selling online businesses. Your hosts, Justin Cook and Ace Chapman, share their real-life advice, examples, and expert interviews to help you build and grow your own online portfolio. Now to your hosts, Justin and Ace. Welcome to the Web Equity Show. This is episode number 10. I'm Justin, your host for this podcast. I've got my co-host, Ace Chapman, on the line. What's going on, brother? What's going on, sir? It's great to be here doing another episode with you, man. Yeah, buddy. We're talking about hiring and building teams. All right, man. Let me lay out an ideal scenario for you. Let's say I can give you a business that has a ton of revenue, huge profit margins, and everything is automated. You have zero team. You have zero employee responsibilities or virtual assistants. That doesn't sound like a bad business, right? That sounds absolutely magical. Something like a unicorn. Yeah, you know, man. A, magic- little, a little too magical, I think. And that's that's <laughs> kind of the problem is that you know it sounds great and you hear this mostly from people that are selling you books or courses or whatever. But from the people that I know that have had success in business – it just doesn't happen that way. You just don't really see that. I mean, you see that they have teams, they have processes in place, they have people that are running their business. And unfortunately, I just don't think there's a way around it. So that's why we're talking hiring and building teams today, because it is an important part of building your empire. If you run these websites online, you're going to need to involve people to help you run them. Yeah. I mean, it's really rare to see a large business that doesn't have some sort of team. And so if you're planning on growing a business, this is a skill set that you want to have because, you know, we've done hundreds of deals and I've seen maybe one that was a multi-million dollar business run by one person, but he was running himself into the ground. So even if you can pull it off, is this really something that you want want to do? Yeah. And to be clear, you know, building and managing teams is a lot more information that we're going to be able to cover completely in one podcast episode. So we're going to cover the highlights. We're going to share some of our experiences. There's a lot more to cover on this topic than we'd be able to get into in just one podcast. Yeah, yeah. We're going to cover the when, the who, the where, and a little bit about how to manage your team. But this is just an intro. I think the bigger thing is some of the advantages and being aware of the disadvantages of having a virtual team. And, you know, I've built some local teams. You've managed some local teams as well. And so, you know, we'll talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages to that as well. Yeah, that's near and dear to my heart because I love the remote teams. You know, I get uh, people ask me all the time. They say, OK, so you're in Bangkok. Your business partner's in Manila. I just talked to Mike, who's in Saigon. What's going on with you guys? <laughs> like, what's the deal with your business? Like, yeah, that's kind of how we roll over there, man. That's our gig. So I love the remote team idea. And we'll get into that in a bit. First up, buddy, we got some listener love, man. We got a five-star review on iTunes. Nice. Tell me about it. All right, man. It's Jay back. Gives us five stars. Says, great info for newbies or pros. I've been following Justin on the Empire Flippers podcast for a while. Web Equity is a great spinoff to Justin and Joe's podcast. Ace and Justin make a great podcast duo and provide critical information for all aspects of buying and selling online and offline businesses. Keep it up, guys. Well, thanks, Jay back. Appreciate it, buddy. 
Got a question from Will on Twitter. It was actually in response to us listing and selling a $2,000 site. He was wondering if vetting is easier on these smaller sites. And he asked, you know, because who would lie about a site that makes $100 a month? I thought that was kind of an interesting question. You know, we've run into this problem where when we're selling a $2,000 site, Ace, it's just honestly not worth our time. And we get 15% of that deal. It's like 300 bucks. It's just, I mean, we, you know, we do vetting on the front end. We've got to do the transfer on the back end. And it's not really worth it. But since that's where we came from and we like to give people like an opportunity to kind of get started with a smaller site and kind of test through it, we've just never kind of given it up. The truth of the matter is, though, is that, you know, vetting a $2,000 site is maybe 70% of the work of, you know, vetting a $20,000 site. But a $20,000 site is 10 times the money to us. Exactly. And I think therein lies the problem. I think even for the buyer, it's the same thing. It's easy for people to go out and spend a couple thousand dollars. And so there actually is a lot of rampant scamming in that space. And the other side of it is it's a smaller amount. So the person that is trying to fake that income or lie about the income and the site and traffic and all of that they're not as likely to be pursued aggressively because the person that does get scammed and, you know, we see this a lot on flipper deals where, you know, somebody gets scammed, they may say something about in a comment or something like that, but there's never, you know, legal ramifications for the seller or anything like that. Yeah, you're just not willing to do anything over the 2000 bucks. You're probably just going to let it go. The other problem is, is that as a buyer, you know, you've got to do your own due diligence, right? You're going to have to do some work and trying to dig into that to ultimately get a site that makes 100 bucks a month. Your ROI is going to be pretty crappy there. But, you know, if you're just trying it out, I can see why buyers would be interested in that. You know, they can only spend 2000 instead of 20 That's a might be a bit aggressive for them, and 2000 is a lot easier. So, yeah, Will, I mean, the answer to your question is it's easier, but not by the magnitude of which we get paid. So, honestly, I'm not really sure it's worth it. What do you think, Ace? Should we even be messing with, over at Empire Flipper, should we even be messing with like $5,000, $6,000 sites, or should we just screw that? We're doing ten or 20000 or more. What do you think? No, I think that the purpose behind it is exactly what you mentioned, and I think the value is procuring some of those sites that, you know, just are real and, you know, has some risk. But for the person that really just wants to see if this thing is real, I get people calling me all the time that at the end of the day, even if they do have a couple hundred thousand to invest, they're like, this is so weird. So I can just buy some code that's out there in the internet world and it's going to generate money for me. And so I think being it's almost like an education thing. And I'm a big fan of education through experience as opposed to doing a bunch of courses and, and all of that. And so being able to get into a deal, learn how to run it, take a little bit of risk without putting a ton of money up is a really valuable thing. So I, I think that's the value even more than the upfront money is that intro to how this whole world works. Cool, man. I was actually looking to dump those sites, but I guess you're going to make me stick to it. Joe, Joe likes doing the small <laughs> sites. He's like, you know, I think it's a great intro for people. And, and, you know, it is where we came from. So that's kind of the reason we did it. All right, man, enough about that. Let's talk hiring and building teams. 
One of the problems with being a solopreneur is that you often end up being the bottleneck yourself. The truth of the matter is, is that if you want to do more deals, you're going to need a skilled team. It's not just that, though. By having a larger team, you're basically putting a barrier to entry in place. You're putting a moat around your castle as a deal maker that lets you do deals that other can't. For example, if you have a team and you're able to pick up e-commerce deals that require like a customer service piece, you're going to be able to go after those deals that other people just aren't able to do. Maybe, you know, generally the only people that are going after you know, e-commerce sites or the million plus dollar deals. But if you've got a team in place of customer service agents, maybe you can pick up that $80,000 e-commerce site where the solopreneur would pass on it. He'd look for something that's more passive or or you know, more in line with being a solopreneur. So you know, I think it opens yourself up to more deals just having the team in place. Yeah. For one, it gives you that strategic advantage when you're looking at deals. You can do deals that other people can't because they've got to figure out how to take over and kind of hire a team really quickly once they buy the business. The other thing is it can allow you to grow a business. So, you know, when I'm working with clients, I try to get them to focus on how do I build this for the future so that it becomes a bigger business. And a lot of times what that takes is automating some of the processes, having a team in place. And as, uh, you know, solopreneurs and, you know, people that don't want a lot of headaches, we usually don't want a bunch of employees. And sometimes that can be the hurdle that you've got to overcome and get comfortable with in order to take a business to its true potential. Yeah, I really like Marcus Lemonis's thoughts here. I really like his framework where he, you know, he says people, product, and process, or people, process, and product. And the reason for those three is I think you need those three to really have an asset, right? If you're a solopreneur doing you know, client work or something, you get hit by a bus, there's no business, right? It's just you doing the work for that other person. But I think when you start to build a team, you have an actual asset, something you can step away from that continues to make money. And to your point, to really grow the business, you know, it's amazing to me that as an entrepreneur myself, you know, there are certain things I'm doing and I'm like, you know what, no one else can do this as well as I can. And I'm the, you know, I just have to do this. And then finally I'm forced for whatever reason to hand that over to someone else, like someone, you know, my business partner or something twists my arm and says, do you have to give that up? And I do it and, you know, they'll take it in a completely different direction, something I was not comfortable with and they'll crush it. And they'll do make it a lot better. And like it helps grow our business in ways that I didn't, just didn't see. And so by having a team, they're going to see some things in your business that are able to be done that, you know, might just not be your vision, but it might match kind of your long term goal. And the thing I'll add to that is it will absolutely attract more buyers. When you go to a buyer and you say, hey, I'm selling my business, it comes with my team and everybody is in place to keep the business running smoothly. You're not going to have to go out and train people and find them and hire them and hope that they're good and aren't going to leave and, you know, all those things. And so as a seller, when you want to build an asset that's a well or machine, and part of that is having the employees in place. So I think hopefully we've convinced you to at least consider building a team. And obviously there are a lot of options 
when it comes to building that team and things that you want to consider. And, you know, we're going to go through some of those things today. But what I will absolutely add is that, you know, in future episodes, if this is something you want us to go deeper into, I think each one of the points today could be its own episode. And so we want to give you an overview. But, you know, I think both Justin and I have a lot of experience around each one of the areas of hiring and managing employees. And so this is something that we'll probably talk about in the future as well. Yeah, I've hired, you know, hundreds of people in the U.S. working for me directly in an office and ran, I think, up to 50 people or so at once working for me. And I've hired hundreds of virtual assistants in the Philippines and contractors all around the world. So I've definitely got some experience in hiring, you know, running teams and managing people both locally and abroad. So I think hopefully I'll be able to add some value here. But to your point, you know, there's no way we can cover every single step of the process from you know, finding, determining whether you need to hire someone and all the way through, you know, training them in depth. So this would be kind of more of like our general philosophies and kind of how we go about it. And we'll give you some tips and tactics. If you want us to go more in depth, just leave a comment in this show and then we'll make sure we make a future episode for you. All right, man. So let's get into the first question. When should you hire? So an entrepreneur is sitting there, they're listening to the show and they go, okay, like, you know, is it time for me to hire? Do I need to be hiring now? Yeah, I think that is one of those questions. I really like hiring as quickly as possible and getting people in place. But before you do anything, you've got to have some established processes. One of the problems and one of the frustrations that people have when they hire is they get the employee and they really don't have anything for them to do that's specific. They're like, oh, well, I want you to take care of customer service. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, dude. Can you just be me? Like just, you know, head into my business and just be me. Do the stuff that I do. Well, well, what exact stuff is that? And so you're putting your employee, you're putting, especially your first employee, you're putting them in a really awkward position. You're setting them up for failure. And it's really your failure, right, as the entrepreneur. So I think, you know, to your point, having established processes and having at least one or two very specific tasks that you want this person to do. So, you know, this is what I do on a regular basis. It takes me five hours a week. I need you to do this. And what I like to do is I'll have maybe a few tasks like that. So this takes five hours a week or this one takes 10 hours a week. And then I'll have something that is important, but isn't as critical in terms of timeline that they can do just kind of extra. So yes, I need this done. It's a long-term project. You can put hours into it. So any hours that are above and beyond kind of like the specific things you were hired for, you can put into this. And it's helpful, but it's not as critical as the other things that are primary. So then you have that kind of like overflow for them to work on. And to this point, like when you should hire, philosophically, I'd say, you know, especially if you're an early stage entrepreneur, you should forego short-term cash for long-term asset value. I think this is particularly true with website acquisitions that, you know, if you can hire people and replace yourself and get them kind of running the show without your involvement or with, you know, little involvement, it's not going to happen right away. It's not like you hire them and they just magically do the work. But, you know, with the process in place, with getting them hired and trained and everything, it's worth it for you to make a bit less money on the deal so that you have them completely running it. A lot of early stage entrepreneurs actually make less than their team. And the reason for that is, yes, their team gets paid more than they do, but their team is building them an asset, right? Their team is building them an asset. And so if they go to sell that business in the future, that website or that business, right, the employees aren't getting the value that entrepreneur is. So as it grows, yeah. you know, that entrepreneur is getting the value. So yes, they're getting less cash early on, but who cares? That's fine. They're building this asset that's going to stand long term. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the tough things. I mean, one of the as entrepreneurs, that day that you start making money, and especially when you're able to buy a business and you start making money, the first kind of inclination is, okay, I want to put all this money in the bank. But if you can invest in that business, and one of the ways to invest is hiring employees, it becomes a lot stronger business. You attract a lot more buyers and end up selling at a premium. Yeah, that's a pro move right there, right? I mean, you know, when you buy a business, you're like, yeah, it's like, oh my God, I want to take the cash. I want to start recovering my cash as soon as I get break even on my spin for this business, then I'll start investing, right? That's the the mindset. But what can happen then is it can be a race to, you know, oh my God, I'll keep pulling out cash until, you know, and maybe the business starts declining because you're not reinvesting it, you're not trying to grow it. So then it's just kind of a waiting game to see when you can get your cash back. Instead, why not invest in that business, build up an asset that's two, three, four times what it's earning when you first purchase it, and then start collecting it because you're going to regain your initial cost much more quickly. Yeah, yeah. So the next step is determining who you're going to hire. And one of the tricks that I like to use is just imagining the business as a larger business. You know, imagine that it's a $10 million business. And if it was the exact same business, but it was a lot bigger, what would be all of the people that it would take to run that business? And you start to build an org chart and you're splitting up all of the different responsibilities. And it's not to say that you're going to have an individual doing each one of those responsibilities, but you get this very clear picture of what it's going to take to run the business and how you can split up those responsibilities so that when you do hire a person, you're saying, okay, you're taking care of these five things. And then, you know, as the business gets a little bit bigger and they're getting stretched, it's like, okay, we can separate these two things, give those to this person and you're doing these three things. And then maybe you do become that large organization, but you're building this org chart. And, you know, if you do become that large organization, you literally have each one of those responsibilities with different people. And so number one, it tells you who to hire, but number two, it gives you a vision for what your business will look like as a fully mature business. So I'm totally stealing that, buddy. I was because I was reading your notes and I saw your kind of idea here and I thought it was fantastic. So, you know, what we do in our business is we have a strategy meeting every quarter and we have, you know, we started off with kind of our long-term vision for the company. We talk about three to five years out and we talk about what that's going to be and what it's going to look like, but we don't do the org chart thing. I think that's so sharp. So, you know, what you're saying is, is that I have this org chart with kind of everyone in the company as I see it in the three to five years out, right? And then maybe I can, you know, they're just positions or whatever, but it's like a physical org chart. I use Google Draw or, you know, whatever tool you want to mm-hmm. use. And I have pictures of people that are going to be in those positions. And I maybe circle a few and I say, okay, right now, Justin takes care of this. Joe takes care of that. Mike takes care of these three roles. Andrew takes care of these four roles. And then over time, I can see, okay, let's break this out into a role. Of the roles Justin fills right now, which one can I pull out that we think is the next one to put in place? I really love that, buddy. I'm I'm definitely stealing that. Let me add to this too, though, that... I think that's a really good framework kind of like for heading toward a vision of what you want your company to look like. But I think there's also the lower level, there are metrics you can use. So say, for example, we have uh, right now, let's say 10 customer service agents working on tickets, right? And I know that if for a period of two months or more, we go up by 15% in tickets, 
right? That, you know, there's definitely room for another person, right? Probably are assuming our agents were at, you know, max capacity or close to it, let's say 80, 90% capacity. They're probably getting closer to their edge. I can probably hire another person. <laughs> so you can use actual metrics in your business too to help you determine when you need to kind of like relieve some of that workload for your team. And, and I think that works out better as you get larger. But and this also works, I think, for the lower level positions where some of the things are more defined and measured. Yeah, yeah. And the, the real goal here is most businesses aren't going to grow because there's a lack of clarity about the path that you need to take to grow. And the more clear you can make that path, the easier it is to grow the business. And so I think one of those areas that most entrepreneurs and business owners have a lack of clarity is around the role descriptions, the accountability of the people on their team, the responsibilities, and just knowing who it's going to take to take their business to the next level. So that's great. I'd also say a lot of times, and we're not talking about, you know, like just a customer service rep to kind of help you out or relieve some of your stress or someone to just do, you know, very task-based stuff. But let's say you're hiring a management level or, you know, you're more of a, like a startup and you're looking to hire someone else or almost bring on, you know, like a senior level person. You have to keep in mind that this person, assuming they stick, is going to be probably pretty important in your organization. If they're going to stick with you and be with you long term, that's a pretty important hire. So you don't worry if you take a little bit longer to make a decision on that first hire, because that's really going to be, I think, an important role and someone who may end up ultimately being, you know, a right hand man to you. So you might as well have someone that, you know, both is, you know, great for that specific role or, or what you need, but also a good cultural fit too, right? Yeah. We do a lot of like, and we'll talk about this in a bit, you know, when we're in the hiring process, but we do a lot of sorting and sifting early on the process. Like we, you know, kind of make them jump through hoops and we make them do all these things and we have them self-select and basically, you know, find ways to kind of remove them. It's a game of how can I get them out of the you know, hiring funnel? And then when it gets down to like the final interview where we're actually you know, asking them questions and either meeting face to face or via Skype, it becomes more of a cultural question. Do I think they'd be a good fit culturally within our organization? Like, do we connect? Do we click? Do I think this person can learn from me? Can I take their feedback? These become more important questions than they do early on in the process, for example. Absolutely. So let's talk about where to find these people. Where are you going to go to find these employees, Justin? Well, it depends on, you know, the employer you're looking for. You know, one of the things you can do is use networking, right? You can use the people in your network. And and what we do, uh, we have a weird business, right? So, you know, we could talk about that. I think ours is a little different than probably most of our audiences. But, you know, we have a whole bunch of people in our community that talk about being location independent and traveling the world. So it's easy for us to find, for them, you know, ask them to share job positions that we have that require someone to come out to Southeast Asia, for example, from like Australia or the US or whatever, because they have an audience of people that are looking to do things like that. So for example, I could reach out to our buddies, you know, Dan and Ian over at Tropical MBA. I could reach out to Sean Ogle over at SeanOgle.com. Those are guys that speak to, you know, the really young kind of like hungry, I want to be location dependent, you know, entrepreneurial crowd. So, and they'll share this, you know, our job posts for us and help us find the right people. And it's a great way for us to find apprentices. We've done it several times. We found several apprentices through just those two sources alone. 
Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of that. And, you know, they come in, you kind of know that, hey, this isn't going to be somebody that disappears or anything like that. The other thing is, you know, just actually using a service to go out, just pay somebody and they go out and find your employee. And, you know, if you're not searching for some huge VP of some organization and using a headhunter, one of the easy services to use is virtual staff finder. I've used them a couple of times. It's turned out really great. In other cases, it hasn't, but the investment is so low that it's worth it for me to save the headache of trying to go through the search, start from a scratch, filter out people, and you know, even just get somebody that is reasonable. So they do a really good job. And I've had a lot of success. Have you used them or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we've used them. Even when we're running our outsourcing company, we actually use them because we want to know whether we could recommend them or not. So we use Virtual Staff Finder just as kind of a test. And it worked out really well. We got a great employee. And then we ended up ultimately using them again a second time. I've actually, I know Chris Ducker, who owns the company. I was in Cebu. I met with the team that he has there running Virtual Staff Finder. So I'm pretty familiar with those guys. And they've done a good job for a long time. They're very specific, though. Like, they won't find specific roles for you. But kind of the more general VA, virtual assistant, they can help you with. There's another guy, if you're looking for a competitor to that, his name is Mads, and he's in Davao City, and he offers a competitive service to that. I don't remember the name of it. I'll have to look that up, but I'll put a link in the show notes if anyone is interested in that. The other thing I consider is the apprentice model. And this is something we've used with some success, is that you know there are a lot of people out there that realize you know they don't want to just be a cog in the wheel. They want to kind of learn from someone who's in a position they want to be in. And so they're willing to come on probably for less money, not free. I wouldn't try to get free work out of this, but, you know, pay them a reasonable wage. But they're willing to come on for less than they might otherwise because they want to be able to pick your brain. They want to, you know, have a seat at the table. They want to kind of see, you know, the behind the scenes of what you're doing in your business. And if you're willing to be open about that, I think it gives them a great opportunity to learn more about your business and gets you an opportunity to get someone that's super sharp and can come on for cheap and kind of like trial out, you know, whether a long-term fit in your company would work. So we've used that quite a few times now and it's been fantastic for us. All right. So let's talk a little bit about managing. When it comes to managing these employees, especially for both of us, Justin, you know, I've got some employees that are on the ground in the U.S., but I've got other employees that are virtual. So each step of the process is really important because you're not sitting down with that person every day. Yeah. So when you're managing someone, it also involves like training. And so let's say you've already hired the person, you're bringing them on. And I think it's really important to have an onboarding process. Now, you know, the first time you hire someone, you're not going to have this well-defined onboarding process. You're basically going to come up with it then and there. But for future hires, I think it's really important to have one. We have one right now to where, like, I'm not even involved in it. So once we, you know, decide to hire someone, bring them on, then we have our team already has the onboarding process and we'll take them under their wing and get them up to speed and get them up and running. So it's really nice, you know, and these are things like, you know, having them understand, you know, who to go to for what, getting them set up with email, getting them access to everything they need, getting them set up with their LastPass account, you know, all these different things that, you know, need to be done early on. And, you know, for you, I think if you're hiring for the first time or the first few people, having a checklist that you can use for an onboarding process will be really helpful. You can go, you know, line by line and 
make sure that you can do this before you even hire your first person, but having the 15 things that you need to have, they need to have to be able to have access and get started with you, I think is helpful. Yeah. The more you can get specific with each one of those things, the better. So let's talk a little bit just about the local versus virtual. You know, you've had some local employees that you've run. Now you've got a completely virtual team. To my understanding, I've got a little, a couple of folks that help me on the ground, and then I've got a virtual team as well. When it comes to the local team, you know, obviously you've got the benefits of less cultural barriers, time barriers. It's easier to build those relationships. And, you know, it's also just easier to sit next to them and train them and correct them as they're doing things. When they have a question, they can instantly just bring over the computer and ask you. And that can make things happen a little quicker. Yeah, those are real benefits you get, I think, with a local team. There's some advantages with a remote team, too. For example, it's much easier to have 24-hour coverage, right? It's hard to have someone in the U.S. you know, working at 3 in the morning or 4 in the morning. They just generally don't want to do that. Whereas if you have a team around the world, that's relatively easy. Those are easy hours for them. There's also the benefit, I think, of you can hire the best in the world, not just the best in you know, Tulsa or whatever. So you know, if you're forced to hire local, and this is specifically true for you know, like a local business, you know, gas station or whatever. You got to hire whoever is best gas station attendant there in Tulsa. Whereas if I have an online business, I can hire the best customer service agent for the best price anywhere in the world. That really opens up my options. And so that's an advantage, I think, of having a remote team. I also think that by having a remote team, you have happier and healthier employees and management, right? You have people that can you know, live where they want. And, you know, maybe their husband or wife has a job in their city and they're not able to move and they're going to love it if they have this type of job. And and I think that does help to build loyalty, people that are loyal to a company because they kind of love their work situation. So, you know, it sucks because, you know, I think a lot of the advantages for having a remote team are really fantastic, but there's really no way to get some of those local team benefits. One of the things we're doing in our company right now is we have a remote team. I mean, our management staff are location independent and they're generally all over Southeast Asia. I'm in Bangkok right now. My business partner's in Manila. We've got another guy in, well, two guys in Ho Chi Minh right now. We've got a bunch of our team in you know, the south of the Philippines. But what we do is we'll get our management team together at least every three to four months and we'll work together for four to five weeks. So sometimes we'll stay in the same place or at least really close and then we'll generally get together every day and work. And so by doing that every three to four months and getting us together, first off, we go to kind of like a cool exotic location, somewhere that's different and and we can all meet up and kind of explore and have some fun together. But we also get the chance to have some of the value that comes when you're working together. You can you know, build, I think, deeper relationships. You can, I think, build more of the culture in your company. And you, know, you can just reach over and say, hey, man, you know, can you take a look at this? It's a lot easier than trying to jump on Skype sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it is. And now that I'm pretty much traveling full time as well, my local team is also somewhat remote and they really love being able to kind of work from home when I'm traveling and we stay in touch. And it's a similar thing when I get back to Tennessee and I'm visiting and hanging out with family, we'll work together. They can, you know, we'll kind of come up with our vision for the next three, four months 
and they can ask questions and get the benefits of being in the same locale. Ace, I got a question. You hired locally. I'm guessing because that's what you're most familiar with. I mean, I know you've worked with VAs and stuff before, but like that just seemed to be the best fit. But are you changing your mind a little bit? Like, you know, be traveling so much. What are your thoughts on the fact that you hired locally and you thought that was the best move, but now it's not local anymore, right? I mean, you guys are both remote because you're gone so much. So are you realizing that you could have hired people in Sacramento and made it work? Or do you think that having them local initially was such a value add-on that it was needed? You know, it is. As of right now, I really appreciate and love that I had the local person because even in hiring the VAs, they help manage that process. So it's almost like, you know, outsourcing even the VA process. But it is. It's really nice. And and like I said, I think the best thing is having the best of both worlds because all of those benefits you talk about, I mean, at the end of the day, they're more productive. They love being able to work from home and, you know, we get those benefits, but it's nice to be able to come in. And I work in a little bit of a complicated space. And sometimes it's nice that my clients know that I have a team that's in the U.S. as, as well as a team that they interact with that's overseas. Yeah. One of the things we've never done, I don't think we would do is where we hire an apprentice and they remain remote. So they never come, you know, work with closely with us or anything. They just kind of stay remote, do their thing. And we stay remote and do our thing. I don't think we would ever do that. We've always felt that, you know, taking whoever's, you know, just hired and bringing them out to work with us closely for at least two months, but probably two to even up to six months and work closely with us and be around us and kind of see what our business is like and learn more about our business. I think that's really valuable. After that, if they want to work remotely and we don't need you know necessarily be in the same city or even the same country, I think we're fine with that. We've grown into to where that's okay with us. But that initial piece, we still want them close so that they can I think learn a lot faster, you know, about our business and the role they're going to play. Yeah, yeah. I think we're doing the same thing in different ways. (laughs) All right, man. So let's do a quick wrap up. One of the things I think is really important that we talked about today is passing on the short term cash gains for the long term asset value building. And that kind of comes into play. And we're talking about hiring a team and, you know, forking over the cash that, you know, short term cash that you're getting so that you can build that long term asset. One of the things we didn't cover, I wish we would have covered, we just didn't have time, was the skill transfer process, which is basically a way to you know, take a skill and pass it on to someone else with very little packet loss. We did a podcast on that on the Empire podcast. I'm going to go ahead and link to that in the show notes. It's really critical, though, I think, for making sure you don't have packet loss or data loss down the line. You want to make sure that you're training them and that they know everything you know, that they need to know to pass it on to the next person and pass it on to the next person. But I think those points are really important. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing like we talked about before is I think it's a good point to plan out the roles in the business and begin building an organization that is prepared for growth and just realizing that the main reason that most people don't grow and they're frustrated is because they don't have an organization that can handle the growth. If you want to make 50000 a month and you don't have a team that's there that can handle all you can handle is 20,000 a month and you're frustrated, (laughs) you know, one of the things you've got to have is the capacity before you can get to that point. Well, another reason I think you want to build out that org chart of kind of like where you envision the business being too is because maybe you're like, you know, I want, you know, have this business that's making $50,000 a month and you build out this org chart and you realize payroll 70,000 a month and you're like, uh, 
yeah, maybe that's not going to work, right? So you might yeah. have a vision yeah. that doesn't match the reality of the people that are going to be required to pull it off. So, dude, I'm totally <laughs> stealing that. We have kind of the long-term goal, but we don't have the actual physical org chart for what that's going to look like. Dude, I'm just ripping that from you, man. We're using it now. <laughs> anyway, man, great having you show. We'll be back next week with another show. Hope you guys dig it. Thanks for listening to the Web Equity Show. Now is your chance to be a part of the action. Go to www.webequityshow.com gift and send us your business acquisition or exit question and have it answered on the show. 